can be seated. And please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 5. This morning we continue our sermon series through the book of Acts. Next Sunday is the Sunday before Reformation Day. Reformation Day, of course, is Halloween, October 31st of 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and uh, that is next Tuesday on Halloween Reformation Day, and so next Sunday we will celebrate Reformation Sunday together as a church. Pastor Kevin will be preaching us a Reformation sermon, so please um, be here if you can, because we are the Christ Community Church. We stand in line, convictionally, we are Protestant. We are other things. We are more than Protestant. We are Christian. We are Orthodox. Um, but we are Protestant and we are Reformed and uh, we are in protest uh, to the Roman Catholic Church and their anti-unbiblical uh, 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 theology of justification. And uh, that's not all that we are, but we are certainly that. And we remember that and we celebrate that every year. So uh, next Sunday, Reformation Sunday. All right, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people, or speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council of all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this come to, or what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. When the captain with the officers went and brought them, I'm stumbling all over the place. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the law of Christ is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Christ is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Christ are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Christ is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Christ is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Christ are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we ask now, Father, that you would sanctify us in the truth, and we pray that your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who inspired your prophets and your apostles to write your holy infallible, authoritative, inerrant word. Amen. Amen. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing, the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. These are the words of one of the most famous poems ever written in the English language, The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. What you may not know about this poem is that it was originally entitled Two Roads. The Road Not Taken, originally entitled Two Roads. And much ink has been spilled debating the meaning behind Robert Frost's poem, What we can say for sure is that in the poem, Robert Frost presents two choices for us. The traveler comes to a fork in the road, and he or she can only travel one path. The road he chooses will take him down one path in life, And the other road he will not travel. He must make a choice between the two roads and then live with the consequences of that choice. 
our lives are comprised of the choices that we make. Decisions both great and small tell the story of each of our lives. With each of our choices, both great or small, we cannot go backward. We can only move forward. We can only ever live in the moment that we are currently in. We can never revisit the past. The future always remains down the road. All we ever have is right now and the choices we make in that moment. Acts chapter 5 is about the most important choice that we can ever make. The most important fork in the road that each of us must face. Either choice has consequences. And if we are going to travel one road, we cannot travel the other. One road leads to death, and the other road leads to life. As we stand at this fork in the road, in Acts chapter 5, the road that leads to death is the road of sin. The road of sin leads to death. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 tell us the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the couple that lied about an offering that they gave in the early church at the expense of their lives. Some have debated whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Were they Christians or not? Obviously, we don't know for sure, seems to us like uh, Ananias and Sapphira probably were believers. Um, I wouldn't take a bullet for that position. That's where we're going to land this morning. Verse 3, Peter says that the couple lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says that they lied to God. Verse 9 says that they agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. So these, this language seems to hint that Ananias and Sapphira had a relationship with God and that they were sinning against God. Two weeks ago, if you were here, uh, you will remember that Pastor Kevin uh, showed us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 how sometimes God indeed disciplines his children with death. It happened at the church in Corinth to those who were abusing the Eucharist. And it may very well have happened here in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Though whether someone is a believer or not, regardless, God is always right. God is always correct to require a sinner's life because of sin. So, it would not be 
we, we should not think it unusual that Ananias and Sapphira died because of their sin. What we should find unusual is the fact that everyone doesn't die with every sin that they commit. We must be grateful that our God is patient. And overwhelmingly, more often than not, God does not execute the judgment of death every time we sin. But don't get this wrong. He would be just to do so every time. That's because the God of the scripture is the one true God, and he is our holy creator. God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. Pastor Zach led us in our call to worship from Genesis 2 and 3, where God gave Adam his law, and our father Adam broke God's law. God told Adam the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he would surely die. Genesis 2:17. Adam rebelled against God and creation fell and Romans 5:12 tells us therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3:10 says that none are righteous. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the, the wages of sin is death. Ananias and Sapphira are, in a sense here, recapitulations of Adam and Eve, a man and his wife breaking the law of God and they sin, and they die. Like Ananias and Sapphira, we are sinners, and we deserve to die. Because we have sinned, because we broke God's law, we deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. There are only two roads any person can travel. The first road, the first option is the road that we're born on. It's the road of sin and it leads to death. If you are not a Christian, this is the road you are currently on. Scripture says that you are at enmity with God, that you are at war with God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. 1 John 1 8 says that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. If you reject Christ, you are on a road that leads to hell. This is true for those who do not believe. For those of you who do confess Christ, for those of us who do confess Christ, we must be warned. We should not pursue sin because sin leads to death. Are you living in unrepentant sin? 
Are you planning sin? Are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Are you testing the Spirit of the Lord? If you do not repent, God will discipline you. Maybe even unto death. If you persist in unrepentant sin and there is no discipline, it may reveal the fact that you never believed to begin with. The road of sin leads to death. That's what Ananias and Sapphira show us. But there is another road. There is another road that leads to life. The road of the gospel leads to life. Verses 12 through 16 picture the spiritual healing that is the gospel road. And then in verses 17 through 42, we see that the gospel road is filled with suffering but also that suffering for Jesus is worth it. So let's look at these consequences, right? With each road we travel, there's consequences. The road of sin, the consequences are death. The road of the gospel, the consequences are healing, but, but there is suffering, right? There is pain in the medicine, but it's worth it. The gospel road is healing, Verses 12 through 16 tell us that the apostles continued to heal many in Jerusalem who were either sick or demon-possessed. I say continued because Jesus started doing that in the Gospels. And then we've already seen in Acts chapter 3, we will see in the book of Acts that the apostles are exercising demons. They are healing the sick. And when we are reading the New Testament, especially the Gospels and especially Acts, uh, and the early epistles, the early written epistles, it's important for us to remember that this period of redemptive history was unique. And the miraculous gifts and the healing described here are descriptive and not prescriptive. These early texts are describing what happened at this unique moment in the history of redemption, not prescribing how the church will practice miraculous gifts for all time. Jesus and the apostles did a unique work. They were unique in their miraculous work because they were announcing the arrival of the kingdom of Christ. If you look at the rest of Scripture, so take out the Gospels, take out Acts, take out the earliest written epistles, because we're saying this is a unique moment in redemptive history. If you look at the rest of Scripture, right, all of the Old Testament, and then the later epistles, the later letters, miraculous healing and this level of overtly demonic activity is not the norm, right? Whenever people are arguing for miraculous gifts and healing continuing today, they're usually arguing from the Gospels or from Acts or from the early epistles. 
But if that was a unique moment in redemptive history, if, if that's when the page was being turned from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and that's not prescriptive but descriptive, we can look at the rest of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, and in the later epistles, the end of the New Testament, and see what is more the norm, the normal practice for God's people. So for example, when you read Paul's later letters right before his death in First and Second Timothy, Paul doesn't say anything about miraculous healing. He doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues. He doesn't say anything about the norm of exercising demons. What is he talking about? He's talking about preaching the word. He's talking about the qualifications for elders and deacons. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about how husbands and wives should function in the home. We see the normal pattern for Christian living. The Gospels and Acts and even the early epistles before the scripture is completed, this was a unique moment in redemptive history. The kingdom of Christ had broken into time and space. And Satan's kingdom was doing everything that they could to fight back at Jesus and the apostles. This is a unique moment. This is the climax of redemptive history. This is the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And the miraculous signs were the verification that the kingdom had come. They were a signpost pointing to Jesus. When you get to the destination, you no longer need the sign, right? That's why the miraculous gifts have all gone away, because they were a sign pointing to Christ. Now, as Pastor Kevin said a couple weeks ago, God can do miraculous things whenever he feels like. That's his prerogative, not ours. And he certainly still does in our world. But as the normative pattern for the faith and worship of the local church, miraculous signs and gifts are not the norm. Maybe you disagree with me. That's fine. It's not a first-tier issue anyway. But that is, I'm trying to point that out to, to, to show you this is unique. Jesus and the apostles were a unique thing. This was a unique moment. This is not reproducible in the sense of apostolic ministry. It's reproducible in the sense of what we saw in Acts chapter 2, that we give ourselves to the apostles' doctrine and to prayers and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship, these marks of the church that we've seen all throughout redemptive history. The miraculous signs were signs. That's what they were, verifying the coming of the kingdom. There are several passages in the Old Testament where God promises that healing will accompany the arrival of the Messiah's kingdom. There are too many to read at this time. Listen to one of them, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, it's saying, when the Messiah comes, the sick are going to be healed. Right? The hungry are going to be fed. And what does Jesus do? He heals sick people, and he feeds people, and he exercises demons, not because that's the new norm, but because he's announcing the kingdom is here. 
and what you need spiritually, I'm showing you physically, and what we will one day have physically when Jesus returns to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new, and sin and death are no more, and no one's ever sick again, and there's never demons oppressing anyone ever again, and no one's ever hungry again. These are signs pointing us forward to that day and to the great spiritual healing that we need. Miraculous physical healing was never the norm in Scripture. It is always rare, and it's always pointing us to the deeper healing that we all need. The miraculous physical healing performed by Christ in the Gospels and by the apostles here in the book of Acts is a sign pointing us to the healing that we need for our great spiritual sickness, which is sin and death. The physical healings and the physical exorcisms in the early New Testament always point us to the medicine that we need for our great spiritual wound, which is sin. And that healing is found exclusively in the gospel. As we have seen consistently thus far in the book of Acts, at every turn the apostles are preaching the gospel. They are preaching the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. They are taking their Bible and they are expositing it in light of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter does it here again in response to the Jewish leaders, verses 30 through 32. Peter says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It was for our sin. It was for our deep spiritual wound that the sinless Jesus died hanging on a tree. In ancient Israel, A man hanged on a tree was cursed by God. Look up Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Jesus took the curse of God in our place. And it is by his wounds that we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus took the curse of sin, the curse of death. He bore God's wrath. We just sang those words. You bore God's wrath in my place. God's wrath against sin. The sin that we confessed earlier. The sin that we practice in thought, word, and deed. The sin that we do. The sin that we leave undone, the way we don't love God with our whole heart, the way we don't love our neighbors as ourselves, that's why Jesus was cursed on the tree. But Peter says that three days later, God raised Jesus up. Why? Because the Father accepted Christ's righteous life and his substitutionary death on behalf of all of the elect. 
And then God exalted Christ to his right hand as the leader and the savior of God's church. And Peter says that Christ gives repentance to those who obey him. Well, how do you obey Jesus? How do you obey the gospel? The answer is you must repent and believe this good news. You must repent, which means that you confess your guilt before God. And you must turn from your sin. You must accept the fact that you are a sinner. You must believe in Jesus, which means that you place your faith in Christ alone. Faith begins with the knowledge that God is holy, that you are a sinner, and that Jesus is the only way for you to be made right with God. You must assent to this good news. You must affirm it and not deny it. And finally, you must transfer your trust to Jesus alone because the gospel road is the only road that leads to life. That healing that we see is pointing us to the healing that we need. And Acts 5 tells us that if they could just get them close enough to come under Peter's shadow, they were healed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing what the ascended Lord Jesus was doing from heaven as he was making Peter's shadow heal people? And what is he saying by that? He's inviting you, come into the shadow of the cross. For there you will find your healing, the healing that we all need, the universal human problem that is the word that nobody wants to hear. Sin. It is sin. You are a sinner and you will die because of your sin. But you don't have to die forever. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Repent and believe. The gospel road leads to life. But that doesn't mean the gospel road will be easy. See, there's a lot of things that the, that, the, that the health and wealth guys get wrong. There's a lot of things that the word of faith guys get wrong. And one of them is that God wants you to be rich and healthy if you have faith. And tell that to Peter, right? Tell that to James. Tell that to Paul. The gospel road wasn't easy for the apostles here. They get arrested again for preaching Jesus. Remember last week in Acts chapter 4, the Jewish leaders warned them not to preach Jesus. But in verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's a good word won't belabor this point because we spent a lot of time on it last week. So if you want to hear more and you weren't here last week, go to Facebook or our website, check it out. Um, but church, we, we do have to note again because Peter's words here. And we have no choice in this matter. We must obey God rather than men. Must. Not if it's convenient, 
not if it fits your schedule or it's comfortable or you're an extrovert. No, we must obey God rather than men when the whole world is telling us that something wrong is something right. We must obey God rather than men. And church, when we fail, when we sin by fearing man rather than fearing God, and we will, then we must repent. And we must turn the other way. And we must obey God rather than men. Keep in mind, nobody, you know, Coldplay warned us. Nobody said it was easy, right? The world, the flesh, the devil, they don't like it when we obey God. The world doesn't like it. The devil doesn't like it. We understand that. You know what? Your flesh doesn't like it all the time either. Your flesh will entice you. That's, that's a big part of this, isn't it? To say we must obey God rather than men includes ourselves. It doesn't matter what you think or what you feel. If it stands in contrast to the word of God, then you are wrong and God is right. And you must repent, and you must turn. You must obey God rather than men. The gospel road is filled with suffering because the world, flesh, and the devil don't want you to obey God. Here in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are imprisoned again. They are beaten, physically beaten. Why? Because they were doing what we're doing right now. Preaching Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Of course, this should not have surprised them because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 18 through 20. Church, the world hated Jesus. All the world. The Jews and the Gentiles both crucified him. It was under the watch of Herod. It was under the watch of the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And it was under the watch of Pontius Pilate and Rome. It was the Jews and the Gentiles. The world crucified the Son of God. The world hated Jesus. Obviously, the world hated the apostles. Same thing here. They're being persecuted by the Jews. Peter and Paul, others are going to go to Rome where they're going to be martyred there. Jews and the Gentiles both hate the gospel. The world put the apostles in prison and beat them here in Acts chapter 5. Oh, but verses 41 through 42... 
got a little choked up reading it. It says, the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Holy cow, that's good. Man, the gospel road is filled with suffering. But you know what Acts chapter 5 tells us? That suffering for Jesus is worth it. None of us want to suffer. Of course not. But when we do suffer, on behalf of Jesus and on behalf of the gospel, we should rejoice. That's what the apostles are doing. They rejoiced. We should rejoice that God would give us the gift of walking in the steps of Christ. And we can rejoice knowing that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. The name that is above every name. Philippians 2.9 you see, church, the pattern of Jesus is that of death and resurrection. That's his pattern. We experience that pattern in different ways in our lives. We experienced it first and foremost when we believe the gospel, right? Death and resurrection. Our spiritually dead hearts are resurrected through faith. If you're a Christian, you've experienced death and resurrection already. Your dead heart has been resurrected in faith. We experience the pattern sacramentally when we're baptized, picturing the death and burial of Jesus as we go down into the water and resurrection with Christ as we come out of the water. If you've been baptized, you've experienced that pattern of death and resurrection. We hope in the promise that one day we will experience the pattern of Jesus after we die, when Christ returns and we will be physically resurrected, right? That's why we bury our dead, because we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But church, what Acts chapter 5 also reveals to us is that we must experience the pattern of Jesus. We must experience the pattern of death and resurrection all throughout our lives. We may experience relational death if we lose relationships because people hate that we obey Jesus. We may experience reputational death if we're slandered for obeying Jesus. We may experience occupational or financial death if obedience to Jesus costs you your job or other financial opportunities. We may one day, even in our country, experience the death of personal autonomy if we too are ever beaten or imprisoned, or even martyred for obedience to Jesus. And there are Christians all over the world who face that threat 
even today. Just as the church militant has all throughout church history. But church, that's why if we do face that kind of ostracism, if we do face that kind of persecution, we are in good company. We stand with the prophets and the apostles, with countless believers throughout church history, with the church triumphant in heaven. It is through this pattern of death and resurrection that the victory of God spreads across the globe. In verse 28, the Jewish leaders bemoan that the apostles have filled Jerusalem with the gospel. I love that phrase. They filled Jerusalem with the gospel. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said would happen in Acts 1.8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They have By Acts chapter 5, they have filled Jerusalem with the gospel. And so Gamaliel, he's a big wig, he warns the Sanhedrins, hey, listen, just just leave the apostles alone. There have been other zealous leaders, there have been other movements in Jewish history that have gathered a crowd. He mentions... He mentions Judas the Galilean, but Gamaliel says, listen, those movements died with those men. If God is not with the apostles, then their movement will die with them. But, he warns, if God is with the apostles, then the Jews may indeed find themselves opposing God. And that's exactly what happened. The gospel movement didn't die with Jesus or with the apostles because Jesus resurrected. And his church has persevered and it has spread to the ends of the earth, just like he said it would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Even to this day, Israel as an entity opposes God. Because anyone who rejects Jesus Christ also rejects God. But church, we are the validation of the message of the apostles. We are proof that the gospel is real. Because we're sitting here in the United States of America in 2023. This is the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. Especially in the first century. And we are speaking about Jesus in English. And it has been 2,000 years. God was with them, all right. We are proof that the gospel is real. And church, that's why, that's why suffering for Jesus is worth it. Because regardless of what kind of suffering, regardless of what kind of death we experience, we remember that the pattern of Jesus is not merely death. It is also resurrection. And when Christ returns, he will make all things new. We sang it this morning. It'll be new again. And when Christ returns, he will make everything sad, untrue. And regardless of how we suffer for Jesus in this life, this too 
shall be made right. And in the meantime, we can rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 5 presents a fork in the road where two roads diverge. The road of sin leads to death. The road of the gospel leads to life. There will be suffering on the gospel road, but suffering for Jesus is worth it. Which road will you take? The road you take will make all the difference. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. We confess that all scripture is breathed out by you and it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. We confess that we are only sanctified in the truth and that your word is the truth. And so, Father, we ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. And that as we come to the Holy Eucharist, that it would be with hearts inclined to pray as your son, the Lord Jesus, taught us to pray when he said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We pray all of these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you are a baptized Christian, we now invite you to come to one of the three Eucharist locations to receive the elements.